Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 44. Jesus is speaking. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now you can't really do a series of messages on the importance of forgiveness, the power of forgiveness and not deal with the topic of obtaining forgiveness from God. So we've talked about what could change your life forever if you were willing to forgive, really forgive certain things that have burdened you. We talked on World Communion Sunday about how the Lord has forgiven us and given us a cup of blessing that we didn't deserve in exchange for a cup filled with curse and wrath taken by Jesus though he did, did, did not deserve it. And so now we can't really talk anymore about forgiveness without understanding that everything we've heard so far hinges on our forgiveness by God. Now, what we understand from scripture and the reason that we have this message in this particular order of the series so far is because what we got, we got from grace. God gave us the forgiveness that we seek because God chose to do so. And because Jesus, by his submission, purchased our redemption, whether we want it or not. And so we needed to hear that first before we could be convicted by a word about repentance. And so we wanna talk a little bit about repentance. Now, I'm not going to lie, in this case, I am preaching exactly like the Wesleyan minister that I am. In other words, historically speaking, this is the doctrine of John Wesley, the founder of our tradition. And Wesley would credit uh, Arminius, who was a predecessor of his, for this understanding that we are by nature sinners, that we were born with Adam's sin. It's a concept and a construct that allows us to understand why we need a savior and why even after having been saved, we still sin. And what it boils down to is, is a corrupt condition of our souls that existed since the sin of Adam. And this is why the Lord came up with the perfect solution for sin, which is his son, our Lord Jesus Christ and our savior. Now, with that being said, Jesus just said in the scriptures, just told us in the scripture we read that the critical thing you have to do is repent. That repentance, I can't keep this microphone on my face here, sorry. <laughs> These things are a pain. So, so the, uh, the critical element then is repentance. 
And this is something that quite honestly, I don't know that a lot of Christians have really done. Now I can't get inside your head and I don't know each of you in such a personal way that I could know for sure if this applies to you. But my, my suspicion as a pastor of 25 years is that there are a lot of people who go to church on Sunday who've never really visited the idea of repentance. They are on an intellectual basis willing to accept the fact that they need a savior. They're willing to accept that Jesus is that savior and they're willing to put money in the offering plate, receive Holy Communion, do good works in the name of Jesus and sing songs about his glory. They're willing to do all of that because they know on some level that it's true. But it doesn't really become alive in you until repentance. This is just this is just how it is. Jesus would not have said immediately after having granted us this gift we didn't deserve, repent and be baptized if it were not so. And so what we find is that people will be baptized. In our tradition, they'll have their babies baptized and then hopefully at confirmation, we'll let those young people affirm it for themselves. But, but People will be baptized. They will receive the sacraments of communion and baptism. They will, they will give glory to God in songs and deeds and everything, and yet never have repented. And so there are two logical questions to consider. What is repentance? And why is it so darn important for me to do it? I am a word nerd, as some of you have come to realize, and so the first thing I do whenever I'm preaching a message that centers around a particular term is I look it up in the dictionary. What does the dictionary say repentance is? Well, the dictionary definition is kind of lame. It really just says being sorry, regretting, and remorseful. And I would say that on its basic level, we all need at least that kind of repentance before God. You know, I, I don't know why I have to bring this up. You know, my children are grown and I'm so proud of the young adults that they've become. But you know, what they're gonna do now that they're becoming parents is, is they're gonna have conversations with their children that sound like this. Tell your brother you're sorry, right? And then after a while, one who you just told that to will give in and say, I'm sorry. Yeah, like you really meant that, right? So is repentance saying you're sorry but not really meaning it? Saying you're sorry because there are consequences if you don't, like mom's gonna ground you or whatever. I mean, is that repentance? Probably not. I think we can all agree about that. A more biblical definition of repentance would read like this. It's a change of mind as it appears to one who repents of a purpose that he or she has formed or something he or she has done. That's what the Strong's Concordance, which is a translation of the oldest known words in scripture to English. So in other words, Strong's Concordance tells us what the original author might have meant and most likely meant in the statement. So when the word repentance is used in the Bible, what it's really saying is, is not only am I sorry, but I never wanna go that direction again. So here's Dan's definition of repentance. Repentance at a bare minimum results in at least a 45 degree turn. 
right? And it, I chose that sort of, I, I can't help it, David, you're here and, you know, having a, a certain uh, gift for navigation as you do in your profession. You know, if you turn a couple of degrees, it'll take a long time for you to really go in a different direction. So repentance isn't like that. You need to make a radical change right away because of repentance. And so I'm saying at least a 45 degree change of direction. Ideally, a 180. A 180 degree turn in your course is an indication that you really don't like the direction you're going, so you turn around and go back in the, in the opposite direction. That is, to me, the real heart of repentance. So that brings me to the next point, then, why is it necessary? Well, because if we understand the nature of sin, the real nature of sin, we understand that it's not a list of bad behaviors. And, and honestly, most bad behaviors and sins as they're defined in typical church settings are built more around cultural mores, you know, the, the things that we all agree upon in our particular life and setting. And so if you are in, say, a Southern Baptist church in South Georgia, and this is, no, this is not disparaging in any way, it's very likely that drinking and playing cards and playing pool and dancing would all be considered sinful. On the other hand, if you're in the Baptist church in Northern Michigan, the fact that your church has a, a you know, monthly euchre tournament would seem like a completely natural thing to do, right? So see, there's a lot of cultural mores. There are a lot of things that we consider sinful because our tradition says they're sinful. And so it's very unreliable for Christians, especially ch churchy Christians, to be morally superior. Moral superiority is a dangerous position to take if it's based on cultural mores. You with me? So what is sin? What is it that we must repent of? It's not necessarily choices we've made that are unpopular with the people around us. And it's not necessarily choices we make that are illegal or more universally frowned upon. That's not sin. To understand what sin is, you have to go back to why when God's divine counsel broke up and a third of the angels were cast out of God's presence, why that created an enemy to God, right? This is heavy theology, but I wanna just touch this on a superficial level to say, if you wanna understand what sin is, you gotta go back to the, the champion of sinning, Satan. You know, like, like the number one sinner in all of, of, of kingdom of God is Satan. And so he be, he's like the leader of the, the movement against God, why we call him the enemy, like with a capital E, you know? And, and so what is his problem? Well, essentially, it's his pride. He was called the bright morning star. He was considered one of the most glorious of the angels. In the divine council, he was like God in many ways, though inferior to God. And it turns out that in the realm of the angels and God and all of that, which it's something you have to do a lot of really deep research to, to, to parse out, but it's been done by trustworthy scholars. And so the point I want to make is, is that his problem was pride. And pride if you think about it, is 
at its core, a problem of thinking that you're just a little bit better than everybody else. And if that's not bad enough, then imagine thinking you're better than the people or person who has charge over you because they actually are better. Again, that's a tough thing for us to sort out in our human comprehension, but let's just agree that God, the supreme being, the ultimate superior to all that is created because this is the one who created it, including the lesser people like Satan. In other words, Satan is God's enemy, and yet Satan was created by God, and that same Satan created by God is convinced that he can do God's job better than God does. All right, if you work somewhere where you're pretty sure you can do the management job better than your manager, that's plausible. But when we're talking about God the creator, that's not plausible. There's no probable, possible, plausible anything about it. You can't be better at being God than God. But somehow Satan is convinced that Satan can be. And so Satan's pride is the very nature of sin. And when Satan tempted Eve and then Adam, what we have to understand is, is that he coerced them into accepting a counterfeit tree of life, fruit from a counterfeit fruit that would bring eternal life. And they were lured to it, tempted to it. And then where their sin came was when Satan convinced them that God wasn't altogether just and holy and beyond question. They doubted God, not in that their faith was being tested, but they doubted God's character. They bought the lie that Satan is always telling Satan's self, which is God's the creator, but other people can be God better than God is. You know, like, like somehow I don't need God in my life because I've got this is the heart of sin. Now, are you with me? Are you beginning to understand what the heart of repentance is about? It's about recognizing that we all have innate in us this attitude of disrespect and disregard for our creator, our God. We may not be as diabolically opposed to our creator as Satan, but there are times every day when we choose to ignore God, to ignore God's precepts, to ignore God's presence in our lives. Now, I'm not talking about forgetting to think about God. Let's, let's just be honest about this because, uh, you know, if my mother watches this video, she'll understand why I use this as a reference. I love my mother very, very much. And I have to admit that my brothers and sisters are better at calling her regularly than I am. It's true. And my mom and I have this understanding. She knows that I don't call with the same consistency that some of them do. And she's often admitted to me that if they hadn't called her, she's not sure when she'd have gotten around to calling them. So it turns out that I'm a lot like my mom. And so we have this understanding that, that we're always thinking about each other. And once in a while, we actually get motivated and really call. And yet there's this understanding too that in any moment when my mother needs me, 
or wants to talk to me, nothing is more important, you know, because that's my mom, right? So if we were talking about God in those terms, we can give ourselves permission to recognize that the fact that I don't always call my mother every day or every week or whatever is not an indication of the reverence I have for my mother and the role she plays in my life. None of that is on the table here. So we're not talking about that when we talk about God that way. You know, you may go through your whole day without intentionally talking to God or intentionally crediting God with the beauty of the earth or the meal you had. You know, it's not really about that. It's about your attitude toward God's sovereignty. It's about your attitude towards his authority over your life, his authority over all creation. We forget sometimes that if God didn't want a hurricane to land on the shores of Florida again, God would have no problem making that go a different direction. Now, why God doesn't do it is an entirely different discussion. But my point is, is that we should recognize, as, uh, as Dave Ramsey says in his Financial Peace University, you know, you got to remember sometimes that, that God has the authority to make you go away and leave a grease spot where you were. You know, we, we have to remember that. We have to remember that God is ultimately in charge of everything. And so what happens when we repeatedly turn to substances to heal what feels sick in us? What, what happens when we repeatedly uh, rage about the government because the government isn't good enough and is not solving all of our problems? And what happens when we're anxious to a point of being dysfunctional because we're worried all the time about things we can't control? I mean, these are all more like sin than stealing, lying, cheating, and so forth. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow because it's like, wait, 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 what did you just say? Oh no, I did say that betraying your spouse, betraying your parents, uh, betraying the trust that a store owner has, and, and on and on, all of these things are there. It's in the 10 commandments because it's that important to God. But I'm talking about the heart of sin, the thing you gotta repent of, the thing that does change forever after repentance. And it's your attitude towards God. What you're repenting of then is having an inappropriate attitude about God. That is the thing that you got to be convicted of. The thing that the spirit gets into you and drives you to your knees. And, and you know, I'm not that kind of preacher that might actually call you to do that today. But I hope that whatever happens after you hear this, you find a good reason to repent of a rotten attitude towards God. At, a, at some point in your life, you've got to repent of having disrespect for God. A lack of comprehension that God is the supreme being, that God is the creator, and we are the creatures. This recognition that whenever your life is so all wrapped up in yourself and the temporary nature of life, it means that you're not looking at the big picture, which you definitely indicates that you're not looking at the author and commander of the big picture. I hope this is sinking in. This is, this is really way off my notes because I'm just trying to tell you how it's been for me in my own life. This is where the repentance and the transformative new birth that we talk about so often happen. When I recognize that I am inferior to God, 
and that God doesn't owe me anything. That I'm not entitled to anything from God. When I feel that deep recognition, I'm about ready to repent. And repenting of that is what leads to new birth and transformation by the Holy Spirit. So how do you repent? Well, the Apostle Paul is a good example. King David in the Old Testament is a pretty good, good example. But, you know, Paul, out of ignorance, was persecuting the church. He was zealous to protect the things that he considered sacred until he was relieved of his ignorance and informed of what he did not previously understand. He was actually doing a very righteous thing, trying to protect the integrity of Judaism from a false prophet, from a false Messiah. He just didn't know what he didn't know. But boy, when he had his eyes opened, he was the picture of repentance. He was a guy who did a 180. And your Bible reading will inform you on that. He's a guy who said, oh my gosh, I've been going the wrong direction and I deeply regret it. And he spent 14 years retooling his life so that he could effectively move in a different direction. That's repentance. How do you repent then? Well, there's a little formula. First, you gotta have sorrow. And the scriptures call it godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is when the Lord presses you in a loving way to authentically acknowledge the lack of respect in your attitude towards God. God doesn't need your praise. God doesn't need you to openly and completely direct your life towards his glory. God wants you to do that because that's what makes you well. That's what heals you of this birth defect called sin. You know, if I could, if I could, I've prayed plenty of times, but if I could make my children born with birth defects whole, in a word, I'd do it. If it cost me my legs, if it cost me my uh, total wholeness of body, I'd do it in a heartbeat. So imagine that you've been born with a birth defect called sin, the sin of Adam, and God says all you got to do is feel the weight of that sorrow. And then say, Lord, I have been a sinner. I have had a bad attitude towards you. I haven't respected you for who you really are. I haven't loved you with my whole heart. Therefore, I haven't loved my neighbor with my whole heart, even though I have done good works. They're hollow without being done with a whole heart as an act of reverence for my creator and God. So that's confession. And then the next part of the formula is turning. At least 45 degrees. You gotta make a hard enough turn that you can't keep going even close to where you were before you made this repentant confession. And then you invite that Holy Spirit of God to come into your heart and inform everything you do from that moment forward. 
And when you do, you're born again. And you move in a state of personal holiness to greater holiness every day. Because you're not holy by the words and deeds because they will fail from time to time even after being converted by your confession. But the Holy Spirit will keep you on the right trajectory toward personal holiness. Even after your death, you will continue toward personal holiness. So you see what repentance is? Until you learn to be forgiven by God for the very nature of sin that you were born with, your acts of forgiveness and grace will always fall short. And you know, you'll even find it hard to forgive yourself for certain things. And maybe one of the reasons you're holding something against yourself right now, maybe after years, is because you haven't really repented before God. Because when you look in the mirror and you're hard on yourself and you're carrying guilt about something, it might be because you are guilty. It might be because there is some guilt there. And it might be that the only relief for that is to completely repent before God, not about the sin of your flesh or the disharmony in your life that's caused by sin, but repenting before God for your bad attitude towards God, to your, towards your irreverent attitude towards God. Let us pray. These are hard and compelling words, Lord. I pray they come from your spirit above all else. And Lord, right now there are people who are probably thinking, you know, I, I don't know if I ever have really repented. My hope, Lord, is that your spirit comes upon them, convicts them with a godly sorrow, leads them to a confession that only needs to be heard by you when it's all said and done. And new life in your Holy Spirit. I pray for this for your name's sake and for your glory. Amen. Amen.